When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, I lived in New York City and Manhattan all my life, okay? So, you know, my views are a little bit different than if I lived in Iowa, perhaps. I am pro-choice in every respect and as far as it goes. I am pro-life. Everybody knows I'm pro-life. But you still, I just believe in choice. There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah. I've been told by some people that was a older line answer. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man so priapic he says he needs anti-Viagra, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. No, really, he said that to Playboy back in 2004. I'm not bragging, he told the interviewer. I'm just lucky. Hmm, Mr. Trump, has this lasted more than four hours? Perhaps you should consult Dr. Bornstein. So it's 68 days until the election and Trump is making a surprise trip to Mexico. Wait. What? The big country to the south that Trump says is not our friend? The country where he's more hated for good reason than anywhere else in the world? That's right. Mexico's muy guapo president, Enrique Peña Nieto, invited him to come to the presidential palace for a private meeting. In the past, Peña Nieto has compared Trump to Mussolini and Hitler. So that should be an interesting conversation. Trump, take back the rapists and drug dealers you sent us. Peña Nieto. Vete al diablo. Trump, pay for the wall. Peña Nieto, vete al diablo. Then later tonight, Trump will be giving a big speech in Arizona that's supposed to straighten out his stance on immigration. He's going to answer the question of whether he wants to deport 11 million illegals or forget about that or what. I say there's no way he goes to Arizona and backs down on amnesty. So then why did he trot out that trial balloon last week? In case I haven't said this before, it's hard to make sense of the guy. My guests today, however, Michael Cranish and Mark Fisher, think you can make sense of the guy. They're the co-authors of the new campaign biography, Trump Revealed. And I'll be back with them right after we do the tweets. It is being reported by virtually everyone and is a fact that the media pylon against me is the worst in American political history. What do African Americans and Hispanics have to lose by going with me? Look at the poverty, crime, and educational statistics. I will fix it. A wonderful Pastor Mark Burns 
was attacked viciously and unfairly on MSNBC by Crazy Morning Micah on Low Ratings Morning Joe. Apologize. I think that both candidates, Crooked Hillary and myself, should release detailed medical records. I have no problem in doing so. Hillary, look how bad it's getting. How much more crime and how many more shootings will it take for African Americans and Latinos to vote Trump equals safe? Does anyone know that crooked Hillary, who tried so hard, was unable to pass the bar exams in Washington, D.C.? She was forced to go elsewhere. My guests today are Michael Cranish and Mark Fisher. They're the authors of a new book, Trump Revealed, which they wrote with the whole Washington Post political reporting staff. It's a campaign biography of Donald Trump. Michael and Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So tell me first a little bit about the process of writing a book like this. I mean, you know, I always cheat and go to the last page to see how late it goes. And this one goes to like two weeks ago. I mean, it's pretty impressive. But how do you write a book in the middle of a thing that's happening like this? It was a challenge, and it was certainly the first time we've done it quite like this. We've done uh, biographies before of candidates. Every four years, we try to do a very thorough biography of uh, each of the candidates. But this time, in order to do this book, you know, if you think back to March, it wasn't really clear that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee until late March. And so we just got started then, and we realized that we did not have the time to do the traditional approach of doing a bunch of stories for the newspaper and then compiling them into the book. And so we, we decided – the only way we can do this in a way that can serve voters and give them a sense of who this guy is and where he comes from is to put a lot of manpower on it. And so we took more than 20 of our best reporters and put them together. Uh, they went out and each of them had a particular aspect or period in Trump's life that they were digging into. Uh, they fed it to Michael and, and to me. And we wrote this book and we were able to cover all the way up through the convention. In fact, uh, just seven days after after we sent in the epilogue from the convention, well, I had a, a finished book on my desk. So that was pretty astonishing uh, given the uh, usual pace of the book industry. Yeah, my publishers always t- tell me it takes a year. Right, exactly. And it usually does. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to throw this at them next time. Um, I will pay you guys a compliment. I've read every one of these frigging Trump biographies. There are like seven of them. And this is definitely the one I would recommend. Partly because I think it's it's really – you write the story really well and you condense it and you get everything in. But – it raises the question, what's new in here? I mean, in a lot of cases, you're going over and going over well episodes in Trump's career that are that are pretty familiar. What's the news? Well, Jacob, I think there's a lot new. I mean, really on every page, there's deep reporting of different things. So the arc of his life, you know, but so many of the details that hopefully make this come alive are new. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, in the chapters about his Atlantic City uh, dealings, uh, there's a dramatic episode, for example, that I had not been familiar with, but really tells you a lot about Donald Trump. And that was the day in 1989 when uh, three of his top casino executives came to Trump Tower, met with Donald Trump, and then they flew back in a helicopter to Atlantic City. While they were over the Garden State Parkway, something went wrong with one of the rotor blades and the helicopter crashed. All three men died, including the gentleman who was the 
really the person responsible for all the casino activity in Atlantic City and described to me as really one of Donald Trump's very closest friends. And he has a very small circle of advisors and associates, and he relied heavily on this person. Right as this happened, uh, he was about to open the third casino, the Taj Mahal, the biggest and grandest, and things did not go well. Um, long story short, all three casinos in Atlantic City eventually went into corporate bankruptcy. Donald Trump um, at one point started blaming the, the people who had died saying they didn't set things up properly. Then Donald Trump admitted that he hadn't had his own eye on the ball on Atlantic City. He fired people. He said someone else who was running a casino was a type C personality. All the things that you see playing out today in the campaign, you can really see going back in parallel form back then. And I think a lot of that to readers would be new. It's it's a dramatic story. It's one of Donald Trump's uh, darkest moments. I had the chance to do an interview with him really just about this particular uh, episode. And he said it was one of the the worst days of his life after the deaths of his parents and his brother, Fred Jr., uh, losing uh, these three men. He said it's something he still thinks about. And it's a different side of him. You you see in the scenes there that he's uh, in Trump Tower. He's got a couple of aides with him. Someone comes in and tells him what's happened. He has to call the um, the spouses uh, of those people who died or the family. And he said it was an extremely difficult thing you know, for him to do. Uh, and he never really did have as close an associate in Atlantic City as, as those people he lost. And, and therein lies some of the, the problem. He, he does rely on a very tight circle. And you see it again in the campaign. He's already fired two campaign managers. So it's something he's dealt with throughout his life. So in this case, he waited a decent interval, like a day, before blaming these guys for what was going wrong with his business. It, 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 it was more than a day. It was definitely, <laughs> you know, he went to the funerals. One of the funerals, for example, there was a thousand people at one of the funerals that uh, I wrote about. I, I just find things like that. You know, when you can go inside sort of the interior of someone's life and see how they deal with crises, that's what you want to do in a biography. You want to see how they dealt you know, with their darkest moments. And this was one of many many crises that Donald Trump faced. And we can go into the, the details of his financial you know, problems, but he was able to survive. But it took an awful lot of uh, maneuvering to, to get him to uh, avoid personal bankruptcy. It was just the corporate bankruptcies. I'm interested in your larger take on the casino business. I mean, at some level, you have to be an idiot not to make money in a casino. It's the closest thing to legal counterfeiting machines there is, right? It's a license to print money. How did he lose money on all these casinos and go bankrupt? He saw it that way, and long story short, um, he built. He want, He had one casino. Then he said, "Oh, I can get a second casino. Then I can get a third casino." And his own advisors said, "Look, you're cannibalizing your own business. You need to go to different markets." The way it was run, he he like I said earlier, he he said I, I took my eye off the ball because he was having an affair with Marla Maples. Um, it was too much at once. Um, it's like putting three Starbucks on the same block. It's a little great business, but that's too many. That's an interesting analogy. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so this, Trump always has a drama with anybody who who writes about him because on the one hand, you guys are reporters, you're from the liberal media, you're going to tell lies about him. He assumes all that and starts proclaiming it before you write a word. But he also loves being the center of attention, loves people writing about him. So how did that play out with your book? Well, it actually started uh, even before we began the reporting on the book. Right after we made the deal with Scribner, uh, as a courtesy call, I I, I rang up Hope Hicks, his press secretary from the campaign, to let her know we would be doing this book. We would enjoy having a series of interviews with Mr. Trump to uh, learn about his life. And uh, I could barely get the words out of my mouth before she cut me off and said, you are profiteering off Mr. Trump and we will not be participating in this book. And uh, she was quite angry and rather abrupt 
abruptly ended the call. And then a couple of days later, she called back after having spoken to Trump and she was all peaches and cream. And she said, you know, I told Mr. Trump about the, your project and he's delighted and he'd love to have you come up to Trump Tower as often as you'd like. And uh, that was indeed the case. He was uh, quite gracious and generous with his time. He gave us more than 20 hours of interviews among the people who were working on this book and uh, just for the book. And he routinely would extend those interviews beyond their allotted time by an hour or more because in part, he was learning about his life from us and we were, of course, asking him about his favorite subject himself. (laughs) And so uh, he he loves to talk about that. And, uh, you know, he's not – He's not the most well-read man, and he's not the most learned man about his own background, but he was interested, and he was he loved to tell stories, and he did keep saying, I want this to be a fair and accurate book, and we said that's, of course, our goal, and then he would occasionally get a little more stern and say, you know, if this is a bad book, I'm going to come after you, and he gave us examples, and he talked about his $5 billion lawsuit against Timothy O'Brien, who'd written a previous book about him. One of the remarkable things that Trump told us was that he'd never read that book, and yet he went ahead with that lawsuit. And he told us he would not be reading our book either. So he, he, I said, well, how did you sue somebody for $5 billion without having read the book? And he, in a classic Trumpism, he said, well, people told me it was a bad book. <laughs> but he, I mean, in that case, it was, it was the one trigger point for him, which was his actual net worth. And Tim O'Brien assessed it, I think, at that point after the bankruptcy is well under a billion dollars. And that's what drove Trump crazy. I mean, if you guys had said on the first page, we think Trump really is worth $10 billion, you could say anything you want about him. You could say he was a bloodthirsty murderer and he'd be promoting the book for you. That's probably right. And uh, that is the the real trigger for him. Uh, We have the story in the book about uh, the Comedy Central roast where he put out the word to the comedians appearing on the roast that any subject was okay. Okay, including his family, even his children, except you may not joke about whether he's really worth what he says he's worth. And uh, everyone abided by those rules. That's his version of les majest. Yes. Yeah. Um, after reading this, and it, maybe it's because I've read so many Trump biographies now, but it really left me with the feeling that this is a hollow man. He's ultimate. The phenomenon of Trump is endlessly interesting, but Trump is a character is ultimately of limited interest because when you get deeper, there is no deeper. Well, I think, you know, part of it is he created this character, this persona. I I wouldn't call him a hollow person. He's got a lot of um, expertise in what he's done best, which is building and surviving. When you look at the many catastrophes he's had financially, I mean, there are many, many. uh, It is sort of amazing that he was able to survive and still create this image. And for a lot of people, they know him through TV shows. They know for the name on buildings and so forth. But, you know, he hasn't been like a lot of politicians who who say, here's what I believe and I'm going to stick through it through my entire life and career. Here's a man. There's a chapter that we called Political Chameleon, for example. And the reason, you know, we were justified in, in using that title was because he's changed party affiliation seven times, Democrat, Republican, Reform Party, Independent, uh, Republican, changed position on many issues time and again. So, you know, that raises the question of does he have core beliefs? So that may go to the question is, is he hollow politically? Um, his response to that is, look, I had to do what was good for me at the time of my business. I wanted my uh, business to survive and I wanted to have friends in politics, whatever party they were in. So he goes back and forth and it's different from any other politician, you know, that I've covered over the years. But that's, you know, that's where he is today. He's not 
he's not an ideologue like a lot of politicians. He views himself as being more pragmatic, but it also means that you see why he's having so much trouble in the campaign, even now talking about what is really his position on immigration. In the book, we have the anecdote where after Mitt Romney proposed self-deportation of 11 million illegal immigrants, uh, Donald Trump said that's a crazy and maniacal idea. That's his words. And he said that it would turn off a lot of Hispanic voters and so forth. And of course, then when he launched his candidacy for the presidency, he talked about forced deportation. And now he's talking about softening that. So, you know, there's a lot going back and forth because he doesn't have the same kind of firm ideological rooting that so many other politicians do. If you go further back, he, see, I was going to say, but he, he bragged about hiring uh, illegal groundskeepers for the golf courses in Florida. He said uh, he said Hispanics are the only ones who can cut the lawn right. <laughs> and of course, he used uh, Polish illegal immigrants uh, to uh, do the demolition work on Bonwit Teller to make uh, room for uh, Trump Tower. But on the on the question of hollowness, I I think of him more as a solitary figure, as a lonely man, uh, someone who has uh, been uh, kind of starved for love through his entire life with a cold and distant father, uh, a rather mysterious mother who uh, lived in, in relative seclusion for the latter part of her life, and uh, someone who told us in our interviews that he he really has not had friends in the way most people think of friends. And, uh, you know, I asked him, who would you turn to in, in times of tr- trouble? or lack of confidence or any kind of crisis, and he was kind of stumped. He was quiet for an unusually long time and said, you know, if you think about friends as people you go out to dinner with, I don't really have that. Um, and he's never really had that. And so I said, well, okay, who would you turn to? And the only thing he could come up with was his kids. And that, and that is a genuine, that does seem to be a genuinely warm and close bond that he's developed with his kids in later years. They did not have that bond uh, when they were children. Serious question. Who's allowed to call him by his first name? Does he have a, if, if that might be a definition of friends is who's allowed to call you Donald or Don? That's, a, that's a great question. And I, I don't know of anyone who does that, uh, in his immediate circles. Certainly not the people who've worked with him in the office there, uh, in the inner office for decades. He's Mr. Trump to them. And, uh, you know, other than his kids, uh, who I, I doubt call him Donald, but, uh, I, can't think of anyone in his life who has that stature. You guys really bend over backwards to be fair to Trump, and I think that's admirable. But you also seem horrified by the idea he would become president. How do you deal with the constraints of being objective newspaper reporters who are usually covering candidates who, whatever you think, are not horrifying, who don't exhibit this kind of demagoguery, don't pose this kind of danger to the country. We don't go into whether he should or shouldn't be president or whether it be horrifying or great as president. Our belief is that you need to tell a full story of biography because you need to show how he's already dealt with crises and different things in his life over the years. And this is a man who's had many financially uh, and personally. You know, someone can issue – I remember covering Mitt Romney and I also co-authored a biography of, of him when I was at the Boston Globe. And he issued a book and at the back of the book, there was a 59-point plan, not 60 points, 59 points. And his aide asked me, well, why are you writing a book about Mitt Romney? He already wrote a book about himself himself and it wasn't very revealing. And And the 59-point plan doesn't really tell you whether he'd be a good or bad president. You need – and that the reason 
behind this book and hopefully the reason people find it interesting is that you really get to see year by year how he's dealt with things, how he's evolved. And it's called Trump Revealed because we believe that over the course of his life in the book uh, that his character reveals itself and that you can come to your own conclusions. Here's how he's dealt with all sorts of things uh, throughout his life and apply that. You can't predict what a person would face as president. You walk into that Oval Office and you know some crisis will come up that you never even imagined. So it's what your life prepares you for, not necessarily the the plan that you develop before you uh, become president. You know, obviously, um, journalism is changing and, and people in some parts of uh, the news business are more comfortable these days being predictive and, and drawing conclusions for readers. You know, I think as you point out, Jacob, the, the, the tradition in newspapering is we put out the facts and we let you make uh, your own conclusions. You know, I, th- I think I, even between Michael and me, I think I'm maybe a little more comfortable with drawing some conclusions in a less traditional kind of way. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say say uh, that, that I think uh, Donald Trump is outside of the mainstream of presidential candidates through the ages in terms of his uh, incuriosity, in terms of his uh, inability to hold a linear conversation, in terms of his <laughs> lack of, uh, of reading habit. But I think both of us come from that same tradition of saying, you know, here's what we know about Donald Trump. You get to decide whether that disqualifies him and, from the presidency. And we want to be very transparent about this. The, the Post put online this week an archive of a lot of our reporting. And that includes a number of interviews that Mark and I and other reporters did with Trump. And so, you know, you're not just seeing one quote taken and put in the book. You can see the, uh, the questions that we asked and we, we didn't sit there thinking, how can I artfully put this so it reads well in the transcript? We just did what we usually do as reporters and decided we're just going to put it out there so people can see the entire process. And we've already in the last day had a lot of people go through the interviews, a lot of documents and find interesting things. Other news organizations have done stories about interesting things in the post interviews, which is great. We, we love that they're looking uh, at our material. And just to take you inside our process a little bit, I mentioned earlier that there's a chapter called Political Chameleon, you know, which sounds pejorative to a degree, but it's so well documented that it's indisputable. So that's that's where we want to come to. We don't want to just throw it out there because we have views. If we're going to say something like that, we want to – so we can be conclusionary to a degree uh, when there's no question, but we want to do it in a fair way so people see that we are upholding those those traditions um, and draw – if we have a conclusion, we want to make clear you know, why it is that we do that. Yeah, and I commend you for being uh, transparent in that way with the reporting. I think that's terrific. But I just want to push this journalism question a little more because the question is – is there something about this man and this year that changes the norms that political journalists have lived with? And I would say just as a reader of political coverage that the New York Times and the Washington Post, which have traditionally been the most rigorous about separating fact and opinion, retaining neutrality, trying to, to be uh, objective – They've gone a lot farther than I've ever seen, and I think the Times probably a little more than the Post, but in calling Trump a liar on the front page and saying that he's a threat to the rule of law. They've come out and said things in news stories that would traditionally be regarded as an opinion. And I guess, you know, do you, are you guys – do you think that this is that, – that the Trump situation – changes the way political reporters should relate to him? Not necessarily. I, you know, I think it's a bit of a coincidence that this candidate comes along at a time when the news business is changing quite dramatically. And so you're seeing uh, fact-checking kinds of uh, operations at a number of news organizations, and you're seeing an increased willingness to draw those kinds of conclusions in a much more definitive way than we would traditionally have done. Uh, and I think that was happening before Trump came along. And it's happening on issues unrelated to Trump. But 
obviously Trump confronts us with that uh, decision every day. And so there is more of a willingness to say, uh, look, he said this, but we're not just stenographers. This is wrong. This, he's saying things that are inaccurate or he's, he's, he's ex- exaggerating. There's nothing new about a demagogue running for president. There's nothing, you know, we've had the Pat Buchanan's and George Wallace's uh, through our history. And uh, so that, that is a clear part of the American political tradition. And I think we're approaching Trump in the way that uh, some of those, you know, the Joe McCarthy's of the past have been taken down by a firm and repeated recitation of the of the facts. Uh, so that that's the tradition that we build out of. Uh, are we being more uh, overt about it this time around? Yes, but it's not entirely Trump related. Last question for both of you. So this this show has to go off the air in 70 days, which means Trump has to lose because I can't possibly do it for four years. years? Um, So what's his next act? Assuming he loses or if he loses, what will he do after the election? I think Donald Trump has a long and consistent history of when he wins, it's all about Donald Trump winning and he made it happen. When he loses, it's somebody else's fault and heads will roll and the system is rigged. And we see him laying that groundwork already. We see him in this daily public struggle for how he's going to explain this and how he's going to spin this as uh, not his fault or even as a victory. And the system is rigged is what he is settling on. And I think he's going to trying to find ways to play that out beyond the election should he lose. And so, you know, there's a lot of speculation and uh, a little bit of fact about him collecting people toward the idea of a uh, a television network of some sort or some kind of a program service uh, that would uh, keep him in the public eye and allow him to uh, continue being a provocateur. Uh, I think he would very much enjoy that. I think that fits in with where his whole career and business model were heading from the forward. Uh, so I think we will see something like that, but he, he's not going to go away. That's for sure. And I think his children, just like in The Apprentice, who were put you know forward in that show, they would be given a, a, even a larger role and you'd see a lot more of Ivanka, for example. You know, after the 2012 election, uh, on election night in Boston, he uh, Trump went to Boston. He thought that uh, Mitt Romney was going to be declared the winner. And when he realized it wasn't going to be a victory party, he got on his plane, turned around, went to New York and started tweeting, we need to march on Washington. The election's been stolen. He patented his phrase, make America great again. So from that experience, you can see that just as Mark said, he's, he would complain if he loses that the system's rigged. So uh, there would be quite something. Um, if he does lose, you can just see him uh, going all out and, and it might be quite a uh, extraordinary situation for the country to deal with. He might even offer to sponsor Trumpcast to keep it going. <laughs> uh, we could talk. All right. Uh, Michael Kranish and Mark Fisher are the authors of Trump Revealed, an American journey of ambition, ego, money, and power. Michael and Mark, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. He likes it when I say, Vete al diablo! Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, but we just call him Senor Esteban around here. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. He don't need no damn Viagra. And of course, John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. He granted amnesty to my Spanish accent. Gracias, Juan! I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.
crooked Hillary's brain power is highly overrated. Probably why her decision making is so bad. Or, as stated by Bernie S., she has bad judgment. 